I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. to that. All right. Well, good morning, Transit. How are you? Good. Good. Awesome clapping. Amen. All right. Well, hey, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. This morning, we are in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And as Jeff kindly reminded me, this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Uh, One New Testament scholar said uh, that we are on holy ground here. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 appears to be, it's called the hymn of Christ. It appears to be an early church creed and him used in uh, the early church uh, worship services. And, and so with that said, as I was preparing for this message, as I was praying, I believe the best preparation for sermon prep is on your face before the Lord. And I was saying, Lord, uh, help me to do justice to this text. You know, like help me to do justice to this text. And the prayer is not bad, right? It's not like a bad prayer, but there's a much greater prayer I should be praying. And, and, and this is my hope for us this morning is that I immediately in that moment changed that prayer because I realized what I said uh, uh, maybe wasn't as accurate and what my heart was after. And I immediately switched that prayer to, Lord, help me to do justice to who this text is pointing us to, right? And so my, my fear is that in the church, we love acquiring more knowledge. We love to be bobblehead Christians because we equate more knowledge with Christian maturity. And actually, knowledge isn't an end in itself. Knowledge is a, is a means to a far greater end, which is worship. So the more we know about this Jesus and this beautiful gospel story, the more it leads us to exalt and praise and make much of his name. And so that's why this passage is important, because it tells us of how awesome our humble Savior is, how good our God is. And so with that said, we're going to read Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11 out loud together. There's a Bible in the center aisle for you if you need one, and the text will be on the screen. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, help me read this. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you are a God who serves, that you are a God who gives, you are a God who loves. And so, Spirit, we thank you for uh, your presence in us and among us, and we pray that that you move in power this morning, 
that we would grow in, in love and an affection for you, stir our hearts afresh with your spirit so that the natural outflow of our lives would be praise and exalting you and your name, Lord. And I pray that in our lives and up here, Lord, that you would increase and we would desire that sincerely, that you would increase and that we would decrease. The Spirit, speak through me, use me. May I be forgotten and may your word and, and, and may you be remembered, Lord. And I pray that we would leave here profoundly changed and filled with your spirit. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, I got a, I got a confession. Uh, I am a clean freak. Anyone here a clean freak? Come on, don't be shy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen, amen. We should get together and, and, and pray for each other. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, what a clean freak is, is someone who's a freak about cleaning. It means that they're always in a constant state of cleaning. And so for me, this, this, means, uh, uh, it, it, this means that literally I can't like, study, I can't rest unless like, all the dishes are done, tables are wiped down, and, and I see some of you nodding your heads. You're like, preach, Nick, let's go. And, and, and all the, the couch cushions literally are in the right spot. And then, and then I take a deep breath. I'm like, oh, peace, bliss, a clean environment. It's awesome, right? And it is, it is, it is a miserable existence. So I need your prayers. Just kidding. Not for me, for Jen. So, um, and so anyways, so there's a, a couple months ago, August was, August was just crazy. Like just one of those, it felt like a day because it was just so fast. And it was a super stressful season of life. And our dishwasher broke. And so we were hand-washing dishes or trying to, which means that they were just piling up. And there came a night where Jen was gone all day doing her thing. I was gone all day. And we both come back, and the house is a mess. And because I can't coexist with messiness, either I had to leave or the dishes had to leave. And so uh, came a night where, where Jen and I are, are, are dividing and conquering the tasks for the night. And I am literally looking at, like, an avalanche of, of dishes. So much so that I don't know if you've been in this spot before, but you don't even know how to approach you don't even know what the, 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 the game plan is, the battle plan is. Because it's like a game of Jenga. You're like, well, if I take this one, this whole thing goes down. And, you know, it's just, and in addition to that, this stuff has been sitting for a while because our dishwasher broke. So those eggs were like, like cemented on. I need to go to my dad's house, get his belt sander, and like, you know, start getting the gunk off of the, the plates. And uh, this was my thought process as I'm doing this. And, and I'm praying through this because I know it's wrong. So suspend your, your judgment, Okay. We're all proud. Don't get proud on me and say, oh, no, I can't believe, I can't believe Nick thinks like that, all right? Cross says we're, we're all sinners, all right? So judgment-free zone here. So I'm, I'm doing the dishes in anger, right? Like scrubbing, you know, like scrubbing those dishes. I'm saying, Lord, what about me? What about my needs? I just want to rest, man. It's been a long season. It's been a long day. I just want to come home and plop on the couch just one night and just, and just you know, veg out. What about me? What about my knees? Why do I have to do this? And I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, I know this attitude isn't right, but this is how I'm feeling. And I believe God speaks. And I heard that internal audible voice that, that I hope a lot of you have heard. It's the Holy Spirit. And I heard this. I said, Nick, you see this pile of dishes? This is my grace to you. It's exactly what I heard. And it, I, would, I, I couldn't even come up with something that beautiful, right? And so I, clearly it was an external voice. It was an internal It was God speaking to me. That this, Nick, this this mess right here. Here's the beautiful piece, Nick, about this. This is my grace to you in that you get to adopt the mindset of Christ, in that you get to humble yourself and you get to put the interests and the needs of others above your own interests and needs. And the reason I share that is immediately when, when I felt in that moment, 
I was like, oh my gosh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, this passage immediately came to mind. So that if you've been over at my house now, you see that I've printed this passage out that we're looking at today, and it is hanging above uh, our sink. So every time I do dishes, I can look at that when I'm frustrated, you know, and say, hey, what was the mindset that Christ had? And of course now, so every time I do the dishes, I'm just so, I'm, I'm singing with Jubilee and dancing. No, that's not, that's not what's happening. Like I, the Lord's still working on my heart so much so that last week, uh, the Lord just rocked me through Jeff's sermon, and there came a moment where Jeff said, said this, and, and I'm tying this all in, so just stick with me here. Jeff said, humility looks like doing something this crazy. Humility looks like this. It looks like actually assuming that other people's needs and interests surpass your own needs and interests. That's what humility looks like. And, and what Jeff was talking about last week was how humility brings about Unity. He was looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 4. And what I realized in that moment, what I realized in that moment is that all the, the strife, let's say in my marriage or, or all that, 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 that division that, 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 that I was facing in every area of life was because of my pride. It's because of my selfishness. It's because I, I, I had this mindset that, that my needs, my interests trump everybody else's needs and everybody else's interests. I mean, the Lord just rocked me, rocked me last week. And so where we find ourselves in our text today is that we've been going through this series on, on the Apostle Paul's letter to this church plant. He planted this church 10 years ago. It was at Philippi. And, and, and the last two weeks, we've been looking at humility. And this is what uh, uh, the church at Philippi was facing they were facing an external opposition. And what the Apostle Paul knew of this church, the heat was getting turned up in this church. And here's what the Apostle Paul knew, is that when the heat gets turned up with a group of people or in a marriage, it can usually go one of two ways. It can lead to prideful division where everybody in this season of stress makes it all about themselves and all about their needs. And I'm not going to meet their needs until they meet my needs. Right, because we have that contractual mindset instead of that covenantal mindset. It could lead to prideful division or what the Apostle Paul prayers for and what his exhortation to the church at Philippi was is that this external opposition would lead to a humble unity in the church, that brothers and sisters in Christ would link arms and value each other and put their interests above their own interests. And he knew it could go to one of two ways. So in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, we talked about this two weeks ago, Jeff did, Paul's exhortation was, church, stand firm. Stand firm in one spirit. It was a call to unity. He said, don't be frightened by your opponents, but stand firm together. Together you are strong. But how, how can you stand firm in one spirit? And we looked at this last week, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. The apostle Paul says this, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That the only way to bring about unity in a community is humility. Because wherever you see a people that are humble, you're going to see a people that, that, that are unified, that, are, that, that, that they might have differing opinions on certain things, but they still value that person's uh, opinion. And so what's interesting is I was thinking about this as, as I was preparing is we're, we're, we're week three now talking about humility. And the Apostle Paul, it's interesting, like Philippians 2, 1 through 4, what we looked at last week is a beautiful, beautiful passage on humility. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop talking about humility there. He doesn't stop talking about what it looks like to be humble there. Why? Because, because here's why. The key to unity in the church is humility. And listen, the key to fostering and cultivating humility in the church is by pointing them straight to Jesus. 
And so in the passage that we're in this morning, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, church, I've called you now. For, 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 from Philippians 1, 27 to Philippians 2, 4, I've called you to be humble, to be unified. And, and he knows that the only way to, to truly humble uh, uh, people is by, is by pointing them again to Jesus Christ and the gospel story. Because here's what Paul knows to be true. Here's what I know to be true, is that you can't know this Jesus. You can't know this gospel story and make it all about you. You just can't. You just can't. And so my hope this morning is that as we reflect on and marinate in this beautiful gospel story in these seven verses, is that may we just be profoundly humbled and we repent of living to exalt ourselves and have people meet our needs and make much of our names, but we'd bend our knees in submission to Christ and confess with our tongues that he alone is worthy of all praise all worship, and all love and allegiance. We serve a humble Savior, uh, an awesome God, and that's who this passage is pointing to. And, 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 and my friends, you, you can't hear this story. You can't love this Savior and not be humbled, and not be humbled. And, and that's our hope here, because the key to bringing about and cultivating humility in a person's life is just by ushering them into the presence of greatness. And that's what Paul's doing here. So this passage breaks up into three parts. Um, where the Apostle Paul is pointing the early church at Philippi to one, the mind of Christ, two, the humiliation of Christ, and three, the exaltation of Christ. Here's the deal. This passage, I mean, whole books have been written on like just, just theological doctrines in this passage. There's a lot here. We're going to fly through. I had to cut out a lot. Um, if you want more and you want to dig deeper into this, please come and talk to me. Uh, but for the sake of time, um, we're going we're gonna to do what we can to cover all of this. So the first thing we're going to look at is verse 5, where the Apostle Paul points us to the mindset of Christ. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so this is interesting here. See, the, 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 one of the exegetical keys to understanding this passage is verse 5. See, we can, like, we can get lost in all the theology here, but we have to understand that this passage, this hymn of Christ, falls in the context of Philippians. And in the immediate context, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's exhorting the church to humility. And what is he doing? He's pointing them to Jesus. And one of the first things that sticks out to me about this, mind, this command is that we need to ask ourselves, what is the focus of this command? This is an imperative verb. It's a command. Is it on the attitude or the actions of Christ. No, he's saying the mindset, the, the, the attitude. He's saying, think the way that Jesus thinks. Adopt his mindset. And why is that? Because, listen, our inner outlook, our inner thought process, our heart, our mind, our, our souls, what, what's going on, on the inside directly affects everything that we see on the outside. And so often we just focus on the external behavior, like, oh, I got to stop this habit or when I'm in traffic, I gotta stop cursing or you know, whatever it is. And, and we need to take a step back and say, hey, what's, what's going on in, in my heart? What's going on in, in, in my mind, in my inner man? Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else, guard your heart, guard your inner man. Why? Because literally everything you do flows from it. Absolutely everything you do flows from it. In the ESV, it says, for your heart is the wellspring of life. The wellspring of life. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful wellspring, and, we, and we, can, we can, are we polluting those waters? So that what comes out is polluted water. Above all else, guard your heart. And so it was interesting when the, when the Lord called me out last week, he didn't call out my actions, he called out my attitude. It was just a fixation on, on myself and my needs and not valuing other people's needs and their interests. 
Adopt this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the second aspect I want to hone in on here. What Paul is saying here is this is already yours in Christ. That the key to becoming more humble is, is first, you need to be born again. You need to have your heart regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't just go out and have the mindset of Christ without being a Christian. You can't go out and be more humble just by willing and, and saying, I'm going to go be more humble. And that's just going to lead to more pride because it's, it's all your own effort. It's, this is already yours, Christian, in Christ Jesus. That's why we can even be humble and have his mind. But how cool is that at the same time? That we have the spirit of the living God inside us, changing us into his likeness, right? That spirit speaking to us when we're angry, doing dishes and saying, hey, Nick, this is, I love you. This is this, and why I love you, I'm giving you these dishes because I love you, right? The only reason we can live out this command is because we know Jesus. And so you might be saying, okay, well, if this is already mine in Christ Jesus, Nick, I, I know Jesus, but I'm a proud person, I'm selfish. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly wanting attention and wanting my needs to met and, de- and demanding that people serve me rather than serving others. I would say, man, pray that God would cultivate this spirit in you. Submit and say, Lord, I can't be more humble. Would you humble me? Would you make me more like you? Would you help me, Lord, in a tangible way with this specific person in my marriage, whether they reciprocate or not, help me to start meeting their needs even when I don't want to. Lord, would you bring that about in me? This, I believe what your word says. This is already my mindset in Christ Jesus. And maybe it might help us to dust off our old WWJD bracelets and put those back on and ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And what's beautiful about this passage is uh, Paul doesn't just ask that question, what would Jesus do? But he points us to this question, well, what did Jesus do? That might be a better question to ask. What did Jesus do for us? And so that's what what we're going to look at next is the humiliation of Christ. My second point, Paul points us to the humiliation of Christ. And uh, there's three aspects to this. Paul points us to Christ's humble renunciation, his humble incarnation, and his humble crucifixion. So the first thing we're going to look at is Christ's humble renunciation, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And so very, right off the bat here, the first thing that Paul points us to listen is Christ's divine status. What the Apostle Paul was saying here is that Jesus Christ was God. And Jesus Christ is God. He never claimed to be a prophet or a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. That's what he is saying here, that, 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 that Jesus was preexistent. He's equal with God the Father. He did not come into existence at his incarnation but that he is eternal, he is creator, he is Lord over all, he is God. John 1, 1 through 3, this is, this is uh, John, the eyewitness of the person and work of Jesus, and he says this, in the beginning was the word, he's speaking about Jesus, and the, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so there's a lot here, but Christians... We know this to be true. We believe in a, in a Trinitarian God, right? God is one. God is three, a, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of those three persons is fully God. And that's a profound mystery. If you think you've wrapped your, your, your head around that and you can understand that, no, you, you don't. You're either lying or you just don't know what you're talking about. Uh, clearly, if we as finite creatures are, are to learn about a, an, an eternal, an immaterial 
a God of the universe, a creator, clearly there's some things that we're not going to be just be able to fully wrap our head around, right? There's some things we're not going to be able to understand, but your understanding isn't the test of truth. You can never arrive and say, oh, I have fully grasped the God. I completely understand him. Your understanding is not the test for truth. And so we believe in a God that is in, uh, the beautiful aspect of this is that God has been in a relation Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, in a relationship with, with, with himself in community for all of eternity. So, so God didn't create humanity because he, he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needed us. He didn't create us because he needs our praise. No, everything that he gives to us is sheer grace. If he needed us, he wouldn't be God. And so Jesus didn't leave us the option to call him a good moral prophet or a teacher, pat him on the head and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, uh, not bend my knee to you, not say you're a Lord. No, Jesus made some crazy claims. And if you haven't read the Gospels and you don't believe that to be true, pick up the Gospels, start reading them, and, 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 and I'll be praying that the Holy Spirit just, just knocks you off your feet with the beauty of our Savior. And, and, and you cannot miss his claim to deity here. And here's the reason this is important in what Paul's getting at. Here's the reason. The second thing Paul immediately points us to here is how Jesus Christ chose to act upon that divine status. This is crucial for us to understand. He says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. There is a ton of debate about what grasping, that verb in the Greek, means or what the emptying means, but I, I believe this is, uh, this is what most of the scholars say, is that in relation to Christ's divine status, we're talking about that grasping. He didn't, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. He did not grasp it. He did not seize it. He did not use his divine status for his own selfish gain. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage. It wasn't like uh, his divine status is like when you give a kid a new toy and, and he just grasps and seizes it and, and uses it for, and refuses to share it, right? He says, you know, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to this. I'm going to grasp it. I'm going to seize it. He didn't do that. And the second thing he says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself, and so there's a ton of debate there, but the question we need to ask, does that mean that Christ stopped being God at the incarnation? Is that what that means, that emptying means? And that verb in the Greek, four times when it's used in the New Testament, four other times when it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a figurative sense. It means to to nullify or to make of no effect. And so the way Moses Silva explains these two uh, 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 verses is this. He says, the apparent meaning of these striking lines is that the divine and preexistent Christ did not regard the advantage of his own deity as grounds to avoid the incarnation. On the contrary, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. And, and, and here's, here's the beautiful part about this, is, is that Christ's divine status wasn't used for selfishness but it was used for selflessness, not forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. It was used for giving, forgiving, and giving. And I think the exact opposite of this mindset, if you guys have been reading the news or watching the news lately, there's, there's a guy in Hollywood who I won't name him, but he had a ton of power, a ton of authority. How did he act with, it, with his status, his power? He, he, he did it for his own selfish gain, right? He used people. He abused people in a sinful, wretched way. And the exact opposite of that mindset is the mindset of Christ who uses his position of power to serve. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And our Savior, Christians, what we need to hone in on is Jesus, man, he is a humble God. He is a God who first loved us. We serve a God who first served us. 
He is a God who gives and gives and gives. And how sad of us when we use our status of power or authority or whatever to get, to get, and to get. And, and for us husbands in the room, Scripture would teach us that, uh, this, this somewhat, you know, people would say offensive, uh, old-fashioned way of thinking this doctrine of that the husband is the head of the household as Christ is the head of the church. So that's the most beautiful, I think, way to, to run a marriage ever because sadly it's been abused by people who have misinterpreted it and husbands say, I'm the, this is my status, I'm head of this household, so now everyone has to work and I'm just going to plop on the couch, you know, whatever. When in fact, we need to take a step back and look at Ephesians where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and, and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? Husbands, that's how we're called to love our wives. This is, yes, this is our status, but we're, we're uh, Christ, Christ gave of his body, his blood, his sweat, his tears to, to provide for and rescue his bride, the church. That's our call to daily die to ourselves so that our wives would flourish. That's the picture of the gospel, and that's the picture of what marriage should look like, which is, which is a picture of the gospel. How are we doing, Christians, with this being our mindset? And so that's his humble renunciation And next, what Paul points us to is his humble incarnation, verses 7 through 8. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, there's a lot here. But here's the deal. The incarnation, God took on flesh. That Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, united in one person. The incarnation Colossians 1.15 says this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of the invisible God. So what we see at the incarnation where Jesus comes and enters into human history and takes on flesh is that at, at the incarnation, the invisible God becomes visible. He makes himself known to humanity. And the the logical outflow of that is, listen, if you want to see God, if you want to know God, and you want to see his heart for you, look no further than Jesus. Colossians 1.19, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You want to know God. You want to see God. You want to see his heart for you. Look to Jesus. Love walked among us. He is God Emmanuel, God with us. I think it's easy for us to, um, to not fully grasp what Christ did, how this was humiliating on his part, how this was a humble, humble act on his part. And so I'm going to read from you from this book, Christ Crucified, Understanding the Atonement. Great book. I highly recommend it. Um, and I'm going to, here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to read a lot from this. And I'm going to do my best to, to make it engaging, but this is, this is beautiful here. And uh, please listen. Please give me your attention as we read through this. And I just love the way Donald McLeod paints uh, the incarnation for us, what it looked like that, that God came and walked among us, what Christ went through. The cross was but the climax of Jesus's suffering. His whole life from cradle to the tomb was suffering. The condescension already implicit in the incarnation is aggravated by his being laid in a manger and by all that was applied in the fact that there's no room in the inn. Shortly afterwards, the family are forced to flee to Egypt. And on their return, they have to reside in Nazareth, out of which there could come nothing good. Jesus clearly had few educational opportunities. In later life, in fact, people were well aware that he had never had a formal education and were amazed that nevertheless he could teach. 
The Christian imagination has lingered lovingly over the image of him as a carpenter, and the image itself has cast luster over the noble trade. But nothing is heard of Joseph after Jesus' visit to the temple at the age of 12. And his total absence from the accounts of the public ministry strongly suggests that Jesus lost his father at an early age. Once the public ministry of Jesus commences, the pressures and privations are immediately obvious. They begin with the temptations in the desert, underlying the fact that though Jesus was free from sin, he was not free from temptation. On the contrary, he was tempted just like ourselves in every way. Hebrews 4, 15. Behind the phraseology, sanitized by centuries of quotation, lies the harsh reality that Jesus was dogged and harassed by the prince of darkness throughout his life. But there were more mundane pressures as well, and they clearly took their toll, even of his physical appearance, so much so that he could be taken for a 50-year-old, John 8, 57, when he was scarcely 30. He was poor beyond our imagining, owning only the clothes he stood in, homeless, without a pillow for his head, oppressed by crowds demanding a sign and plying him with endless questions, often exhausted as when he lay dead to the world in the stern of a tiny fishing boat caught in the eye of a fearful storm. He was misunderstood by his family who feared for his sanity, pursued by the sick and their desperate relatives, stalked by the Pharisees with their undisguised hostility. His whole life followed a pattern of rejection, rejection in his own country, Nazareth, rejection by the religious establishment, rejection by public opinion, always fickle, and rejection at last by his disciples who all forsook him and fled. Add to these the sheer horror of life, among sinners, for one so morally and spiritually sensitive, we skip lightly over the words made his dwelling among us, forgetting that he had come from highest bliss down to such a world as this, a world where he was surrounded on all sides by the sights of misery and wickedness, the sounds of profanity and blasphemy, and the stench of poverty, death, and corruption. That's what Christ was willing to do. That's the humility of our Savior. We don't serve a God who keeps his distance from us. We we, we don't worship a God who says, I'm not going to go to that place to hang out with those people. There was no price he was not willing to pay for your ransom. Look at the humility. Look at the humility. And what we learn at the incarnation is that God is a God who descends, that true love descends to where we are. And, and, and me, uh, as you know, if you know me well, I have a daughter, Kelsey. She's 18 months. And here's the deal. I, I am much older than Kelsey. I'm 30. She's 18 months old. And I love Kelsey like crazy. Like, I just adore that little girl. Like, so much so. Like, beyond belief, I never even could even imagine I could have this much affection for someone this big. You know, it's like, it's crazy, right? And if you're a father or mom, you know this to be true. But how do I communicate my, my sheer love for her. I am kind of wholly other in a way, right? For the sake of this illustration. What do I do? Well, I ask myself, well, where's Kelsey hang out? On the floor. That's what I do. I descend, right? I get on the floor. What language does she speak? I don't know, but I'm going to try to speak it, right? So you've been over at my house, goo goo gaga, you know, like one syllable words and all that stuff. That's how I communicate my love for her. See, at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we see his heart for you. We don't, we don't serve a deistic God who just, you know, is, is the first cause and then has the dominant role. No, he's a God who is close, who is near, who comes near. 
and then gives you the beautiful promise of his Holy Spirit, his presence with you always. That's our God. That's our Jesus. And that's the beauty of the incarnation. The last thing in the second point that the Apostle Paul points us to is is Christ's humble crucifixion, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the Greco-Roman world, crucifixion was one of the most, listen, it was just one of the most humiliating and degrading ways to die. Just, just humiliating. Uh, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified unless they were traitors. It was reserved for slaves, and Jews believed that if you were hung on a tree, you were actually uh, cursed by God. And this is what Frank uh, Thielman says, New Testament scholar. Partly because crucifixion was not the conversation of polite company, and partly because the cruel creativity of executioners was allowed wide latitude, the specifics of this process are not frequently described. Generally, however, the victim was first tortured in various ways and then fastened to a cross by impaling, nailing, binding with ropes, or some combination of all three. Death often came slowly over a period of days as the victim experienced increased blood loss, thirst, hunger, the attacks of wild animals, and suffocation. Even death on a cross. And I was reading through the Gospel of Mark recently, and I couldn't get past this section. I just couldn't get past this section. I had to read it uh, again and, and reflect on, on why Christ would, I just couldn't wrap my mind around why Christ would, would willingly subject himself to this. Because this passage is, is found in the Gospel of Mark where we see Jesus has power to calm the storms, power to heal. Jesus is the Son of Man, right? That's what he claims to be throughout the Gospels. And in this Gospel of Mark, we know he has power to not endure what he endured here. And this is, this is just how humiliating it was for Christ to be crucified. And then the soldiers led him away, Mark 15, inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They, they put it on his head in a way they, they, they kind of smashed it on his head. So those, those, those thorns dug into his skull. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, just absolutely mocking him, humiliating him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So what we see here is, is, is it wasn't just the, the humiliation that he subjected himself to. It was also the horrific death, death on the cross. Right? And so, so we need to stop and ask ourselves, well, well Why? Why, Jesus? Why would you subject yourself to this? And unabashedly uh, and, and, and unequivocally so, what Scripture teaches us is, is, is Christian, is, is everyone present here this morning, this was done out of love for you. That's why the incarnation, that's why the crucifixion, that's why the renunciation, it was done out of love for you. 1 John 4, 9 through 11, I could quote John 3, 16, Romans 5, 8, a, pl- a plethora of other verses that teach this. But 1 John 4, 9 through 11 is just is, is a beautiful verse. It says this, sorry, 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. How did God want to make his love known to us? And the ESV says manifested. It says cause to be seen. This is how God communicating to his creation saying, this is how I love you. This is how I make this known to you. 
He sent his one and only son into the world. We see the incarnation there. But why? Why the incarnation? Why the crucifixion? That we might live through him. That we might have life and life everlasting, a life abundant through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. At the cross, we see Christ's substitutionary atonement. Christ died for you. Christ died for us. He died for our debt in our place as a substitution. That was supposed to be our place. That was supposed to be our death. Our sin against God, uh, Scripture teaches, the wages of sin is death. And Christ, taking on humanity, was our representative, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and paid the penalty that we, we couldn't pay off on our behalf. But was that the end in itself? Was that why he did it, just so we'd be forgiven? No, no, it was to reconcile us back to God that we might have life through him. See, what Jesus is in the business of doing is reconciling humanity back to their true identity, back to their true purpose. You were created to know God and be known by him, and that's the chief end of the gospel is that we get God. We're forgiven of our sins so that we, so so at at the cross, the veil is torn, meaning we have free access to God to know God, to speak to God, to worship God because we're covered by the blood of the lamb. Christ's death was a, was a substitutionary atonement born out of love for you because a simple definition is this. A simple definition of love is this. Love is meeting needs. Well, what is our greatest need? Our greatest need is to be saved from our sin, the death, the devastation it brings in this life and the next. It separates us from God who we were created to know and to have intimate fellowship with. And so at the crucifixion, we see the humility of our Savior, that love is meeting needs, and humility is putting the needs of others above your own. That's exactly what we see at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what we see Jesus do. Love is meeting needs, humility is putting those needs of others above your own. And even in the garden, uh, we see Jesus say, we see Jesus wrestling in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. We see him wrestling with putting the needs of others your interest above his own. He's saying, Lord, take this cup from me. He's agonizing, agonizing in the gospel. Take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. I mean, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus is a humble savior, that he put your needs and your interests above his own in that moment? Man, look at, and that's what Paul is pointing the church to. He's saying, church, look at the humility of Jesus. Look at his love for you. Look at the value he placed on you. Look at what he was willing to subject himself to on your behalf so that through his death, you could have life. Through his humiliation, you could have a glorification in him. You have life in him. And this should cause us naturally to worship and cause us to exalt and praise the name of Jesus. And so that's what leads us to our third point where the Apostle Paul points the church here to the exaltation of Jesus. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, there's a lot here, but the first thing I want to, to look at is how even in, in Christ's exaltation, his resurrection, God seating him at his right hand, far above our rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, is that we see that this wasn't Christ exalting himself. This was God the Father freely exalting Jesus. 
And the beauty of this, my friends, is that we worship a resurrected Savior. That the gospel story doesn't end at Christ's humiliation, his, his renunciation, and his crucifixion. It doesn't end there. That there's a resurrection, right? Christ is exalted. He is at the right hand of the Father, above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We worship a living king, and this king rules in a humble and self-giving way. And if you know God, if you know this Jesus, you know that he loves to give, and he gives, and he gives more grace, more peace, more guidance, more love, more mercy. His mercies are new every morning. And what does he get? He gets this hot mess, all my junk, all my burdens, right? all my anger, all my hostility. And what do I get in return? I get uh, the joy that comes with knowing Jesus through faith, being united uh, in Christ by faith and all the blessings that flow from that. But you might, there might be, you might be saying, well, Nick, you had me with Jesus being a God who gives with points one and two, but point three here, it sounds a whole heck of a lot like, like God here is getting and getting and getting and desiring praise. He sounds like an egomaniac demanding that we praise him and that we exalt him, that every tongue's going to confess that he's God. How prideful is that, right? But listen, you, you got to track with me here. Hands down, the most gracious thing God can do for you and me is to give us himself. It's the most gracious and loving thing he can do for us. And here's why. Because if our glorious God is truly the most worthy, the most magnificent, the most excellent, the most beautiful being in existence, then seeking to exalt his own glory and to display it to his people is the best thing he could ever do for us. It's the best thing he could ever do. Where else in the world would he point us to? Out of love, if he truly loves you, it would not be loving for him to point you anywhere else but himself. Because he's worthy of all thought, all praise, of all, of, of all allegiance, right? This is the way John Piper puts it in his book, Desiring God. God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimately loving act. For him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, he preserves for us and offers to us, listen, the only thing in all the world which can satisfy our longings. The only thing in all the world that can satisfy our longings is this God, this Savior, is knowing him. That's why you exist. That's why we exist. And so I'm going to conclude with this. Going back to uh, my first point at the beginning is that you can't, Christians, see the call in this passage is a call to profound humility that would foster unity in the church. And, and you can't know this, Jesus. You can't know this gospel story and not want to bend your knee, right? And not, and not confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord. You can't make this all about your name. And I was listening to uh, a podcast recently, a secular podcast, and there were, uh, one of the, the guy was interviewing a Muay Thai fighter who was recently retired. And um, the, the, the interviewer asked this Muay Thai fighter, he says, why do you wake up in the morning? What's your big why? I said, That's a really good question. I'm really curious as to how this guy's going to answer that question. And he said this, and, and I'm suspending judgment. My, my heart actually broke when he, when he answered this question. He says, you know, the reason I wake up in the morning is I want to make a name for myself. I want to make a name for myself. 
with every with like with sincerity he he truly wanted to make a name for himself and the reason that crushed me when i heard that i was like i just i, I just thought i was like man that is going to crush that guy it's going to crush his family he's not going to be able to make a name for himself it's going to crush him christians we don't we don't exist to make a name for ourselves why because because we make really crummy gods right there's one who's greater. That's the beauty of being a Christian is we just get to point people vertical. Say, hey, if you see anything good in me, look to Jesus, right? Make, make much of his name. It's all about him. And here's the beautiful part about Christians. We, we get to uh, imitate Christ in our humility is that we can trust when we give our lives to Jesus and he calls us to humble ourselves and, and to give up our right to, to hold on to our wealth when he's calling us to be generous. And hold on our, our right to be offended and justified in our anger and calling to put the needs of others in, 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 in lieu of our own or whatever. Is so that we can trust that in the end, it's God the Father who will exalt us. He's going to vindicate us. He's got us, right? We serve a loving God. And that's why we have the freedom now to humble ourselves as Christ has humbly loved us. And so, church, um, man, leaving here, would we just but we just worship and exalt and make much of the name of Jesus. Because worship, for us, I think we have this idea that worship is like a hose. You know, like you spray and you can turn it on and off. So we come here on Sunday and we worship, and then we leave here and we stop worshiping. That's not true. We are, it's like a hose that has been duct taped, and it's on constant on, and we're just constantly worshiping. And might I suggest that if you're here today and, and you're miserable and there's lots of division in your life, would you just, would you just point your hands and your, and, your, and your tongue and your thoughts and your praise and your exaltation north to God? Maybe for the first time, bend your knee and say, hey, hey, God, I don't know you, but I want to know you. I want to experience the love that you have to offer and the joy that you have to offer if you truly exist and you are as magnificent and excellent as your, your, this, this Bible says you are. Would you make that known to me? And I bet you, I promise you, he will. Would you do that? Church, we were called to make much of his name, and may we do that this morning. So we're going to give you guys an opportunity to, uh, to do that. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to sing, and we're going to make much of the name of Jesus, and we're going to, we're going to love doing it. All right, so uh, let's, with that said, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we're so humbled by the fact that you continue to give, continue to give, and continue to give. That you loved us so much that you gave your son Jesus so that we would have life through him. Holy Spirit, would you come now in power? Would you make that life known to us, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and our affections? When we come to to worship and exalt you from the, from the inside out, deep within our soul. May our spirits be, be, be full of your praise and full of love for you. May you increase in our lives. May we, may we experience more of your love. May we experience more of your grace, more of your mercy, so that we can go out and extend your love, your grace, your mercy to a world that is desperate for you, a world that is longing to know you, a world that is searching for you, Father, would you come in power in our lives? Spirit, do what only you can do in our lives, what only you can take credit for. 
make much of your name through us. We pray this, Jesus, in your awesome and your humble and your mighty name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.